Many of you know that I went to seminary to get my master's in the great city of New Orleans. And while I was there, I had an evangelism professor that would tell us about some of the creative ways that he and some of his friends would go into New Orleans and share the gospel with the people of New Orleans when he was in the evangelism class he was now teaching. And one of the examples he used was he would take a table into Jackson Square. Now, if you're not familiar with New Orleans, Jackson Square is a very famous part of the French Quarter. It's right there in front of the, the big cathedral there. And when you go into Jackson Square, you see all kinds of activity taking place. You see people selling paintings. You see people doing caricatures. You find people playing music, waiting for you to give them a little money for the, the joy of hearing their, uh, their instruments being played. And inevitably, you will always find someone at a table claiming to be able to tell you your future. For the right price, of course. If you sit down here, I will use some mechanism to tell you about the future. And people actually do this. They go sit at these table and, at tables and hope that these people sitting behind them will give them some insight into the future because they believe that knowing the future will change their today. And so my professor had this idea. I'm going to take my table. I'm going to set it up right beside these other people who are claiming to be able to tell the future for a price. And here's the sign that he put on the front of his table. I will tell you your future for free. And he would wait for people to come sit down and then he would open up his Bible and tell them that the only good and true source of wisdom regarding the future is this book. And then he would, he would proceed to share the gospel with them. Here's the reality. If you are in Christ, your future is a glorious future of eternal life with King Jesus. But if you are apart from Christ, your future is a sad, sobering future. One of eternal judgment apart from your creator. This morning, church family, we're going to look at this good and true source for a glimpse of the future. Because we believe that God has allowed us to see some truth about the future that should change our today. Knowing these things about what will happen surrounding the return of Christ and the end of all things, it should affect how we live for Christ today. That's the testimony of what we see in our passage in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because Paul references some of these truths, some of these future promises to charge Timothy to remain faithful to the work of ministry, to give every day every breath for the sake of the gospel, just as Paul has in his own life. And that charge that Paul offers to Timothy because of the future promises of God is a charge that we should receive today as the people of God. Here's our, our main point from our text, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. The future promises of God are meant to fuel our present faithfulness. The future promises of God are meant to fuel our present faithfulness, or I could say it another way. We are to persevere as the people of God 
in the work of the gospel because of the certainty of God's promises to us about what will happen in the end. Let's hear this encouragement from Paul to Timothy in these first eight verses of 2 Timothy chapter four. I charge you, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Because I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure, it's come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In the text we're looking at this morning at the end of Paul's letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul begins to direct Timothy's attention to the end. And not just the end of Paul's life. Clearly that's front of mind for both Paul and Timothy, but also to the end of all things. And Paul describes for Timothy some promises of God about the end that Paul has been holding to in these difficult days. Some sustaining promises that Timothy must cling to as well because Timothy will also have hard days. Timothy will also have difficult days and God has given you these promises, Timothy, to help you remain faithful. So let's look at some of the promises that God has given to us about the future, the return of Christ, the end of all things that Paul references just in our text today that he, he calls upon both as a source of encouragement to him and his imprisonment as he faces death, but also as an encouragement to Timothy. There are four, four promises that, that Paul draws upon in verses one and then six through eight. And these promises surround the ministry encouragement that Paul offers to Timothy on purpose. Because here's what I think Paul is saying to us. If we don't cling, if we don't cling to these future promises, it will affect our present faithfulness. So here's the first, the first promise that Paul mentions to Timothy, and it is that Jesus is coming back. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is coming again. He will return. That's what Paul says here. Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, listen, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, his appearing and his kingdom, he will appear once again, church family. From the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven at the end of his first coming, a promise was given that a second coming would come. Acts chapter one, verses nine to 11. This is during the ascension of Christ. 
And when Jesus said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? It's Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Yes, it is true that right now Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he will come again in power. He will come again in glory. And this certain return is shown in the New Testament to be for us as the people of God, both a source of hope and accountability. It's a source of hope clearly because when Christ returns, we will receive the fullness, the fullness of his promises to us. Friends, the enemies of God will be defeated. Every power and principality that has come against the plan of God will be defeated. And then he will gather his people, both the living and the dead, to himself in order to take us home. And what hope, what hope that should provide for us who are weary of walking in this broken and fallen world. Hear me, when the weight of all of this becomes too much for us to bear, when we are overwhelmed with grief, sin, death, would you remember would you cling to the promise that Jesus is coming back? Because it is our source of hope. And his return is also a source of accountability because when Christ returns, we will have to give an account to him as our righteous judge. And this is the second promise that Paul references in his writing to Timothy. Jesus is coming back, yes, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. He's coming to reveal who is faithful and who is unfaithful. Now, listen, we talked a little bit about this during our, our series to the Gospel of Matthew, in particular when we got to Matthew chapter 25. And you may remember in verses 31 to 33, and that part of Matthew's Gospel, that Matthew's talking about this work of Jesus to separate the sheep from the goats. There are two kinds of people in this world. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. And the sheep are the ones who have repented of their sins, believed in Christ, and now are the recipients, the recipients of the kingdom. But then there are goats, those who have rejected Christ, who have rejected his gospel, and as a result, they will not be welcomed into the kingdom. Rather, they will be cast out into outer darkness. This judgment that, that Christ gives on the so-called day of the Lord will be a momentous, eternity-shaping moment. But hear me, it will not define our spiritual condition. It simply reveals it. Because on that day, you will already be in one of those two categories based on what you have done in response to the work of Christ. Now the righteous, the sheep, those who are in Christ will be judged for their faithfulness. Yes, it is true. Christians will be judged before Christ, but not in a condemning way, in a very different way because our sins have been covered in Christ. But here's what will be asked of us as the people of God, the kinds of questions that will be asked of us. What did we do with what God entrusted to us as his people? 
What did we do with the gospel? Did we share it? Did we engage in the work of an evangelist? Or did we hold on to this treasure and bury it? Forsaking, forsaking the reason why God has allowed us to stay here as his people. What did we do with our very lives? Did we waste the days and breath that God has granted to us? Or did we use them for his glory? What do we do with our spiritual gifts and talents? These, these gifts and traits that, that God has given to us in order to encourage and build up his people to be faithful to the great commission. What do we do with our resources, our finances? Do we store up for ourselves treasures here on this earth that we know is passing away? Did we invest in the comforts of this world or did, or did we invest in the kingdom? Were we generous for the gospel? How did we use the whole of our lives to advance the mission of Christ? That's the nature of the judgment that we will receive. Sobering, isn't it? But it's even more serious for the unrighteous, the goats, who will be judged for their sin. While God will forgive those who trust in him, and I know all of us are grateful for that promise of forgiveness, he will condemn those who have turned from him in their sin. Listen to the full promise of John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Hear me. Especially if you are not in Christ this morning, in this room or joining us online, every sin, every act of rebellion will be exposed. And if you are not in Christ, you will be cast out into eternal judgment because you have rejected the good and gracious offer that God has extended to all in Christ. We appeal to you even today, to hear this promise, hear this reality, and respond now in repentance and faith. There will be a judgment. And Paul also wants us to know that attached to this judgment are both rewards and punishments. That's the third promise that he mentions here. Jesus is coming back to both reward the faithful and punish the unfaithful. As he unveils the faithful and the unfaithful, he will also unleash rewards and punishment. Those who are declared righteous in Christ will receive rewards of varying degrees based on their faithfulness. While the unrighteous will receive levels of punishment based on the severity of their unfaithfulness. Paul mentions this in verse 8. At the end of our passage, he describes a, a crown of righteousness that he anticipates receiving when he faces Christ, when he once again sees Jesus face to face, his resurrected Lord. And he is longing. He is longing for this moment. He's longing for this crown. The reality of it sustains him in the face of death. 
This is not the only time Paul mentions the reality of rewards for the righteous. He also writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. And in that passage, he says that our actions, those actions that we perform as service to the Lord will be tested. They'll be tested by fire. And what remains as truly for the Lord of a pure heart and service to the Lord will remain and we will be rewarded based on that faithfulness. Now let's also remember, our greatest reward bar none is that we get to spend an eternity with Christ in freedom from condemnation. But the reality of these rewards should not be ignored because God allows us to know about them so that it spurs us on to love and good works and so that we can encourage each other. Hey, keep being faithful. Keep keep pursuing the Lord because God is watching and he will honor. He will reward those who are faithful to him. The unrighteous, though, will receive something very different. Not rewards, but punishment. Varying degrees of punishment, in fact. Now, this reality seems to be the natural inference from the rewards of righteousness. It's the other side of the proverbial judgment coin. But it also is explicitly taught in Matthew chapter 11, verses 22 to 24, and then Luke 20, 45 to 47, wherein Jesus speaks of greater condemnation for some rather than others. And again, this is a sobering moment for us. On one level, I hope it brings us great encouragement that nothing we do is outside of the view of God. Listen, you may be serving God faithfully. You may be serving God in the shadows, behind the scenes, and you think no one notices. Can I remind you this morning that God knows? He sees. He sees. Even when no one else sees, God sees. I hope that's an encouragement to you. It's also a warning. For those who are not in Christ, you can only hide your disobedience and rebellion for so long. God sees it all. And he will judge. He will bring judgment based, based on what he knows and sees perfectly. He will bring justice to bear upon the whole weight of fallenness on this world. And then he will establish a new kingdom for all of eternity. And that's the fourth promise The fourth promise that Paul mentions as an encouragement to Timothy, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back to reward the faithful and the unfaithful, and he is coming back to fully establish his kingdom. Listen, church, what Jesus inaugurated in his first coming, he will consummate in his second. And again, Paul references this reality in verse one. I charge you, Timothy, I charge you by the presence of God and Christ that are with you currently, this Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, I charge you by his appearing. I charge you by his kingdom that we have a taste of presently, although it's not yet fully realized. I charge you to walk in faithfulness. And this kingdom, this ever-present hope before us, we will see the realization of every promise that God has made to us in Jesus. We will see the reality of Christ making all things new. And this kingdom, Jesus will establish his eternal rule as our king in a new heaven, a new earth, joined by a new Jerusalem, a place where we will be able to dwell and worship him for all of eternity. Just like John wrote about in Revelation chapter 21. 
Let me just read for you what this day will look like. Can we, just, can we just get a glimpse of glory this morning as a way to be encouraged as the people of God? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, no crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on that throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and they are true. They are good. Hear me. Everything, everything will be new. Everything will be restored. God does not abandon his creation. God does not abandon his good works. No, he reclaims them. He reclaims them for his glory through the work of Christ. And that which is reborn, restored, will be more glorious than we can imagine. Every ounce of the curse will be removed. Every stain of sin gone. Can't you just imagine it? Then we long for this day. Listen, no despair, no tears, no death, just joy and love and fullness of life as we bask in the glory of God. We will finally enter into our true rest in this new Jerusalem. Church, we will spend an eternity worshiping at the feet of Jesus serving Jesus and reigning with him. What a glorious day that will be. And these realities, these promises of God, they drove Paul. You see it throughout the testimony of 2 Timothy, through every writing that he offers to the New Testament church. These promises, they drove him, they grounded him, and he wants Timothy to hold on to them in the exact same way. This whole letter, he's been saying, Timothy, consider my life. Consider my faithfulness to Christ. And I'm asking you, I'm charging you as your father in the faith to remain faithful as I have been faithful. So let's think about that just for a minute as we, we see the, the charge to Timothy here, but the testimony of Paul throughout the whole letter of 2 Timothy. How was Paul faithful in light of these promises? How did this future knowledge, this this future of what will take place in the return of Christ, the end of all things. How did it sustain Paul? How did it drive Paul? Well, Paul was faithful. Paul was faithful first to the ministry of the word. This, this reality about Christ's return drove him to give him life to the gospel. Now, we spoke at length last week about the whole ministry of the word kind of outlined here at the end of 2 Timothy 3, the beginning of 2 Timothy 4. We're not going to spend a great time here, but I want you to know that Paul's commitment to, to the full ministry of the word was driven by this, this confidence in the return of Christ. Through his life, Paul preached. Paul warned. 
Paul corrected, Paul urged, because he believed that our time is short, that Jesus is coming back. He did the work of an evangelist because he believes that Jesus is coming. He believed that every single human being that has ever existed from the beginning of time to the end will stand before King Jesus as judge one day and have to give an account. And the only hope we have in that moment when we stand before a holy and righteous God is faith in the gospel of Christ. The only hope we have to be admitted into the kingdom is not our work, but the work of Christ to be covered by his blood and be declared by righteous by the one who is truly righteous. He wanted to know Christ. He wanted the, the saved to look like Christ, the lost to know Christ. He wanted the, the bride to be ready to receive her groom. That's the point of the ministry of the word. And Paul gave his life to it. It's sobering to think that one day we will stand before Jesus. And that's good because it allows us to be sober-minded. To think about this life in its proper context in light of eternity. That's what drove Paul. Every decision he made from the road of Damascus forward was driven by this certainty. He was called by God to be an apostle he was entrusted with the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. And he knew one day, this God who radically saved him from his sin through the incredible work of Jesus would call him to himself. And he would have to give an account for what he did with the life and the gospel that was entrusted to him. And so he was faithful. He was faithful to the ministry that had been entrusted to him. Secondly, he was faithful in suffering. As he was faithful to do this work, his life was not free of hardship. He was willing to endure, endure the most painful circumstances because of the promise of a greater heavenly reward. We don't have to spend a great time, deal of time talking about, excuse me, the suffering of Paul. If you spent any time around the local church or rather the New Testament, you probably have heard about some of these things. Paul suffered greatly. He was slandered by people who were jealous of him. His name was taken in vain all across whatever social media platforms existed back then. He was beaten many times to the point of death. He was imprisoned, shipwrecked, and ultimately, he was martyred. But he endured all of that with joy. He endured all of it with joy because of the eternal reward that awaited him. He was willing to lose everything for the sake of gaining Christ. Because Paul knew. Paul knew how, how God is able to, to redeem suffering for his glorious purposes. And he knew this because of the, the work and life of Jesus. Because has anyone suffered more than Christ for our benefit? No, no he, he willingly left the glory of heaven. He took on flesh to dwell among us. His own people did not receive him, but cast him out, rejected him. He was betrayed by those closest to him. His body was beaten to the point where he was unrecognizable. 
He allowed himself to be crucified on a cross. He was faithful all the way to death. He endured all of that hardship, all of that suffering because, because of what he knew God would do through it. Because of this future promise that through the death of the son, the pure and spotless lamb, we could have forgiveness of sins. Through his resurrection, we could have eternal life. So Paul has heard this gospel. He's, he's met the resurrected Lord and he has seen the way that God has redeemed that suffering for his glory. And he believes that, that God will do the same thing in his life. And so he's willing to be poured out like a drink offering. He's willing to literally let his, his life be poured out in suffering so that through it, God could redeem it. Because he knew this life was not all that there is. He knew that whatever hardship he faced here would be offset by incomparable reward in the hereafter. It's a kind of perspective and sober-mindedness that only comes with great confidence in the promise of God. Thirdly, Paul was faithful to entrust. He was faithful to entrust the gospel. He was faithful to entrust the gospel to the nations and to the next generation. Motivated by the reality of what is coming, Paul was faithful to entrust the gospel. Paul, Paul was always thinking about gospel advancement. He was always thinking about who had not yet heard because the gospel must go forth. It must go forth to every nation and it must go forward to every generation. Here's the reality, church. Not a single one of us in this room knows when Christ will return. We don't. That's told in scripture. Not a single person in this room knows when Christ returns. But we want to be found faithful when he does return. We want to be faithful to the end. And Paul is committed to telling as many people as possible about what God has done in Christ because he could return at any moment. He wants to go to the nations that have not yet heard and he wants to make sure that the generations that come after him also know this gospel, that the gospel message does not end with his death, but that a generation will come up after him and generations will come up after them that will continue to faithfully proclaim the gospel. The very fact as he is facing death, he is writing this letter, shows his commitment to making sure the gospel endures. It continues to move forward. And finally, Paul was faithful to death. The clearest evidence of the effect of eternity, of the return of Jesus, the end of all things on Paul was that he was faithful to the end. He believed. He believed unto death. He believed that, that death truly is simply a doorway into everlasting life. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It was a good thing for him to transition from this life to the next because he would be with Jesus. And so in the end, he's not despairing He's hopeful, he's longing to be in the presence of God. 
And he uses three illustrations to prove this point. In verse seven, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, he says, I have fought the good fight. Listen to the past tenseness of this, right? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've been faithful in the past and now because of the future promises. I've been, I've been faithful. I've taken blows in a fight against powers and principalities, but the Lord has held me. He's held me fast. I've, I've run the race of this life well. And now there's a reward waiting for me that Christ will give to me when I see him. I've kept the faith. I've been loyal to my word, to Christ and his gospel. And I know that he will be faithful to me. Timothy, will you do the same? I was looking earlier in, in 2 Timothy and there's so much of this language Paul says to him, chapter one, verse eight, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord Timothy or of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy purpose. I've been appointed to this gospel to be a preacher, a teacher, apostle, and that is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I've believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard me until that day what has been entrusted to me. He will guard me. He will guard his gospel. Timothy, he will do the same. Will you be faithful as I have been faithful? Will you allow these promises? Timothy, I charge you. I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ, who are with us now, I charge you in light of the fact that, that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. I charge you by his second coming. I charge you by his kingdom. Preach. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort. Shepherd the flock. There in Ephesus. And trust that at the exact right time, Jesus will return and bring all of this to its proper end. That's the call to Timothy, friends. That's the call to us. And so as we think about how we can respond to these promises in the example of Paul, let's hear this call to persevere that Paul gives to Timothy and consider it in our own lives as well. Will we persevere? in light of the promises of God? Will we allow the future certainty of what God has said affect our today? Church, may we remain faithful to the ministry of the word because Christ is coming back. Jesus will return. It is certain. The question is, how will the master find us? Let me, let me go back to Matthew 25. to this parable about the, the talents where Jesus talks about these servants right before he goes into verses 31 to 46 about the final judgment, all in connection. He says, this man went on a journey and he called servants to himself and he entrusted them with his property. 
To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. Then he had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So it was with the one who had two talents, he made two talents more. But the one who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground, he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came. And he settled accounts with them. Does any of this line up with what we've been hearing about in 2 Timothy chapter 4? And he who had received five talents came forward bringing five more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I got you five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And to the one who had two talents, he came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two. Here, I'm giving you two back. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested your money. My money with the bankers, my coming, I would receive what was owned with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but when I stand before Jesus, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear worthless servants, wicked servants. Those who are in Christ will take seriously the ministry of Christ because we believe he is coming back. Life is too short to play with teachings that suit our own passions, that promote earthly pleasure over eternal glory. We must be faithful to the gospel because eternity is on the line. Receive this encouragement from Paul, church. Be sober-minded. Live in light of eternity. Endure suffering, the suffering that we, will, that we will undergo in our context. Do the work of an evangelist, locally and globally, declare the gospel of Jesus because there are lost people who will have to give an account before Christ that need to know what God has done for them so they can repent and believe unto salvation. Fulfill your ministry. Let's be faithful. Secondly, let's be faithful even in hard times because of the promise, the promise of eternal reward. Let's remind each other that, that rewards await. Now listen, let's not let this become a sinful thing or we, we begin to challenge each other and try to outdo each other for the sake of just winning, right? That's not the goal of this. We could perverted to that, but all, all of that kind of reward is going to get burned up. Let's, let's spur each other on, though, to say, hey, listen, God's watching. He sees your faithfulness, and I know he is pleased with how you serve him. 
That's the only kind of trophy that matters, friends. Listen, I got boxes in our attic full of trophies and awards. I have no idea how I even got them. I'm sure at one time they mattered to me and I maybe even worked hard to get them. I'm not talking about like participation trophies, like ones that you actually earn, right? Just kidding. (laughs) But whatever it is, whatever trophy it was, whatever medal it is, it's lost its luster. The joy of it's faded. That will not be the case with the rewards that King Jesus gives to his people. They will never lose their luster. You will enjoy them for all of eternity. So why would we ever be concerned with what people think over what, over what God thinks? Why would, we, why would we ever allow suffering or temporary hardship to, to dissuade us from our eternal reward? Let me just read this This quote from Randy Alcorn, who has done a a great deal of wonderful writing about the return of Christ and the end of all things. In the day that we stand before our master and maker, it will not matter how many people on earth knew our name, how many called us great, how many considered us fools. It will not matter whether schools and hospitals were named after us, whether our estate was large or small, whether our funeral drew 10,000 or no one. It will not matter what the newspapers or history books said or did not say. What will matter is one thing and one thing only, what the master thinks of us. Can we live life, church, with his opinion, his favor, his approval in view? Thirdly, Let's entrust the gospel to the nations and the next generation because we don't know when Christ will return. All of us are passing. Life is a vapor. The the gospel must go forth. It must go forward. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that takes international missions seriously. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that continues to send people and finances to the ends of the earth to make sure every tribe, tongue, nation hears about what Jesus has done. Let's never lose that mission zeal, right? I'm also grateful to be a part of a church that takes entrusting the gospel to the next generation seriously. You just heard Pastor Dave talk about that a minute ago. That's what that renovation in our gym represents, our Family Life Center that we are committed to the next generation, that we wanna have spaces available to us so that our children, these students can know, can know what God has done for them in Christ and be shaped into the image of Jesus for his glory. Let's commit to, to entrusting this gospel and finally let's be faithful even unto death. Faithful to death because Christ has given eternal life. Let me ask you this. Do we believe in heaven? I mean, really, really believe in heaven. Do we believe in the reality of a new heaven and a new earth? Do we believe that we will spend eternity with Christ because he has overcome the grave? If we do, then should death Should death be a thing that we are afraid of to the point where it paralyzes us in our faithfulness? No, it should motivate us. It should should guide us sober-mindedly, yes, to greater faithfulness because we firmly believe that nothing this world can take away from us is greater than what we will gain in Jesus. 
Death shouldn't threaten our faithfulness. It should, it should lead us to rejoice in the truth that this life is not all that there is, that we were not made for this world, but for another. We were, we were made to enjoy the presence of God. Would we be faithful to the end? On Friday, I got to attend the funeral of, of one of our faithful members here at our church, Lee Tyler. And Lee's been battling for a little while now, a lung disease. And the doctors tried to find a, a way to, to get this lung disease to go into remission, but it never did and it ultimately took his life. But I was so encouraged, so impressed by the way that Lee and Linda both faced what they knew to be was ultimately going to be Lee's death. Every time I got an email from them, they were speaking words of encouragement. We're trusting. We're, we're hoping in the gospel. We, we know that God has this. And even on Friday, I was encouraged again by a story that Pastor Jeff told that he witnessed when he was visiting Linda and Lee in the hospital just days before he died. He had gone there to pray with them and, and a nurse came in. And as he was talking with Linda, Lee began to talk to the nurse. And remember, Lee's in a you know, in an ICU bed. He's got all the, the wires and the tubes coming out of him. But he begins to talk to the nurse and begins to ask her about her faith, about spiritual things. Hey, do you go to church anywhere around here? Do you know Jesus? And, and Jeff said he was talking to Linda and knew that, that Lee was talking to this nurse. But by the end of their conversation, he looked over and Lee was praying with this nurse. And this nurse was in tears because of the care and concern that Lee showed her and her spiritual condition days before he passed away. Now, how do you deal with death like that? How can you, knowing that your end has probably come, that you're days away from, from your death, how can you look at that moment and still be passionate about the gospel? Because Lee believed these things. He believed them. And so even when death was in front of him, when he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he said, I'm going to be faithful to the end. There's no retirement in the Christian life. Friends, we're to work until the day Jesus called us home. That was true in Lee's life. It was true in Paul's life. May it be true in our life as well. Can I ask you this question? Do you have that hope? Do you have this hope about your future? Because hear me, you will have to give an account one day. And the only way that you will be fit for the kingdom is to be in Christ. As my professor said all those years ago, at every, to every person that stopped by his table, the only way to be confident about your future is to be in Jesus. And so I'm just gonna say, if you do not know Christ today, would you repent and believe in him? Because we want you to have confidence about your future in Jesus. We want you to join us in worshiping God for all of eternity. And that only happens in Christ. Just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to pray with you, encourage you. If you feel the Lord drawing you to himself, leading you to repent and believe in Christ. If you do have Jesus, will you persevere? Will you remain faithful? Because just like he came, he is coming again. Amen. Amen. Wherever you are, do you bow your heads? Ask the Lord to help you know how to respond this morning to the preaching of his word.
What a gift to get a glimpse of the future today. Is that future one of hope and promise or one of fear? Uncertainty. If you would say the latter, if it concerns you that you have to stand before a holy and righteous God one day because you're not in Christ, would you give your life to him today? The Bible promises if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from that eternity of punishment and welcomed into the kingdom of God. And for those of us who are in Christ, will we hold, cling to these promises that Jesus is coming to judge, to reward and punish and to establish his kingdom. And we will Will we allow those truths to drive us to faithfulness all the way to the end? Father, would you find us faithful, even more faithful because of our time before your word today? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.